Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. How can you really get to know people so that they feel like they're part of this collective? They're not just passively donating every month along with their Netflix subscription. Welcome back to episode 32 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode and the whole incredible mini-series on giving moments is made possible by our friends at Neon One. In today's episode, the final episode of this series, for now, I'm interviewing Becky Straw. Becky and I go way back, like grew up together back, but we're not here actually chatting about the past. Today, we're talking about Becky's current role as the CEO and co-founder of The Adventure Project. So what do Becky and The Adventure Project have to do with fundraising moments? Well, like other organizations, they have built an amazing monthly giving program, but there are a few things that make their program unique and special. You're going to hear about this incredible lead magnet that The Adventure Project uses and inspires people to get involved in the collective. That's their monthly giving program. You'll also learn why this monthly giving fundraising model is so aligned with what the organization does and who its donors are. So much of understanding how to create peak experiences for your donors, the experiences that release serotonin and cement memory, is about understanding your donors themselves, who they are, what they're all about, why they're involved, and Becky seems to intimately understand that about her community. As we've been learning in this series, the best giving moments will vary from organization to organization, but the truth is everyone wants more stable and reliable fundraising, and that's what monthly giving programs are all about. Whether you have a monthly giving program, you're thinking about starting one, or you just want to think about new creative ways to build a deeper relationship with your donors, there is a lot in this episode to help you hook and engage your donors in meaningful and effective ways. So let's go talk to Becky. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am so thrilled to be here today with Becky Straw. I'm going to let Becky introduce herself in a moment, but this is just a very funny and amazing reconnection. I'm pretty sure, Becky, you were my swim coach when I was four. I mean, I, but we're together in this, right? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but I was so one year you, older. <laughs> you, ta- you taught me how to swim and we've known each other for a really long time and then just reconnected and I got to learn about your amazing work. And so I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm honored. So tell everyone a little bit about you and what you're doing right now and a little bit about your history and what brings you here. Yeah, no, it's great to be connected. It's so funny and fun. I'll try not to make every story a swimming in analogy. Um, <laughs> but, 
but that was a big part of my life. Right. And I think for you too, we really carried that forward and really enjoyed it. And I think for me, I felt very blessed and very lucky to grow up where we live and to have the opportunities I had that I really started exploring. I traveled a lot and really became passionate about international development and human rights. I went to grad school at Columbia to study social impact and social enterprise administration. So how do you run a nonprofit really effectively? That was something I really cared about and I really felt strongly and passionate about. It's great to have caring heart, but if you don't know actually how to implement the work in a way that's going to be uplifting and empowering and have longevity, then, then why do it? So that's always been a focus of mine. From there, I was interning at UNICEF's Division of Water and Sanitation which is how I got connected to a crazy guy who was starting a nonprofit by the name of Scott Harrison. And people were like, this guy's incredible. He's like working on a couch, doing all this stuff, raising a million dollars. And I basically hounded him until he let me volunteer on his couch after I graduated. So you can imagine my parents were very proud of me (laughs) to to start at Columbia and then be like, I'm not going to work on this guy's couch for free and babysit at night. But I, I felt so strongly about my convictions towards what he was doing and his leadership, just how they were innovating charity water and the water space. It was super fun. I was the third employee and got to really see like, how do you grow a unicorn of an organization really quickly <laughs> with um, flying by the seat of your pants, working you know long hours and feeling really fortunate that I was a program director there managing all of the work. So I got to go spend about a third of my time in Africa, actually seeing what was working, who we were working with, the local partners, making sure that we were really delivering high quality water and sanitation services. It was a dream job. It was awesome. I love that. Thanks. So that was the first three years that I was there. And from that, I spun off with my co-founder, Jody. We, um, she was actually Charity Water's largest fundraiser. Interestingly, she was a mom in Iowa who had six kids and she was like an early blogger. Now it's like everyone has TikTok. I can't keep up, but you know, <laughs> she was basically just blogging about her life because who doesn't want to follow a mom with six kids? Seriously. Um, and you know, her two her bottom two were twins that were adopted from Sierra Leone. So that opened their eyes to international issues and wanting to give back. So through that, she started raising money just in her free time. And I think she raised like a hundred thousand dollars in six months, which like for anyone who knows, like that's not easy <laughs> Like to do it as a mom of six is like pretty impactful. So she just is, is somebody that people gravitate towards for transparency and being an, such an authentic person that I sometimes was charged with meeting donors and taking them to see the work. And so that's how we got connected as we were in Liberia together and became fast friends and shared this belief that neither of us have Bill Gates wealth and we're never going to be rich. And that's not the purpose of our lives, but we want to know that we're doing something impactful and that it's making a difference in a really transparent and uplifting way. I think we both have this commitment that there are people out there who work so hard and just need that opportunity. And we're so so blessed to live here in the US. And there's so many moms and dads out there who are struggling to earn $2 to be able to buy the uniform for their kids to go to school. But being able to get access to that money to do that is pretty impactful. So our philosophy has always been, let's start an organization called the Adventure Project. We're adding venture. Let's support ventures that are adding something positive to the world that are helping to uplift people by solving these social problems while also creating jobs in the process. So as I said, like one of the social problems is water. We have all these great organizations that are coming in and drilling wells and installing new water systems, but there's not necessarily the framework to keep those 
systems working. So right now, a third of all wells in Africa are broken. That is over $400 million in assets that are just defunct right now. So we're the organization that's training people to become well mechanics, fixing them. Um, as I mentioned to you, we're, we're often called the unsexiest <laughs> nonprofit sometimes <laughs> because it's so beautiful to see water gushing out and you take a picture of that well. But I think there's a lot of millions of people out there like me who are like, that's great. But is that well still working next year or is it working in two years or five years? I want to know that my donation today is going to solve a problem long term. And that's what we care about. And that's all we do is how can we think about financial models that end up empowering communities with good jobs, with parents who now have tangible job skills. They're locally employed. They've been supported by local organizations, which is the most culturally appropriate way to do this work, but that there's a financial mechanism to make sure that your work goes on and your donation ends up rippling to help thousands of people. I love that. And I think what's really amazing and awesome about your model is that it also is a different skill set and superpower for an organization to do what you're doing than perhaps to drill the well the first time, right? And so I think, you know, partnerships in all sectors are hard. Partnerships in the nonprofit sector, I think are particularly hard, but when they work, they're so powerful. When there's a strong organization like yours that can partner with other organizations who are either starting the project or now it sounds like there's a fair amount of upkeep and fixing to do, but I think there's incredible possibilities in that partnership model and all the different ways. But I hear you around the fact that what your programs are might have less of the immediate kind of feel-good stories than some of the initiation projects that we've grown accustomed to searching for, perhaps, in some of our like philanthropy. That being said, you've done an incredible job building a monthly giving program in particular and really identifying who are the right and core power partners for you. So talk to me a little bit about your journey there and who are your funders? What are they like and looking for? And how have you really built a culture of engaging and retaining them? Yeah, I think... For us, I hear time and time again, I like that it's a sustainable solution and that it's effective. And I'm actually seeing stories of people who are being lifted out of poverty. It's not just a story about a kid in torn clothes that needed food and I gave him food. Even though that feels good, at the end of the day, it feels better knowing my 20 bucks actually created this woman's business that helped her then hire this many people. So I think we tend to target people that the best way to say it is like people who are a little bit more interested and educated about international development, they're optimistic and hopeful. They understand too that we've made an extraordinary strides in ending extreme poverty. I don't mean me, myself or my organization, but just globally, we've really done a phenomenal job. You know, before COVID hit, extreme poverty was being reduced for the last 20 years in a massive scale. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can end extreme poverty in our lifetime. And I I think we can do that by having a groundswell of people who also feel the same way and also want to channel their giving to the right places that will create the most bang for the buck. So I don't want to be painting in broad strokes about, you know, what our donors, who our demographic is, because it's college kids and it's a lot of moms and it's a lot of like tech entrepreneurs. Like we, we segment and bucketize who those donors are. The tech entrepreneur might want more numbers and more figures in terms of the data of how his or her donation is going to a certain place. And the mom really resonates with being able to help another mom send her kid to school. So 
I think there's all different ways that you're putting on your hat and being like, okay, what does everybody value and how can we make sure we're providing that and touching on that with our reporting and our stories? Yeah, actually you answered it perfectly because I think what I meant to be asking is what are the values of your donors? Like how do they identify? What do they believe in, right? And and you did, you said all of those things, which I think is really interesting. And I know in addition to them coming in perhaps with a higher level of education around some of the problems that are happening, you also provide education in this area. And you were telling me a little bit about this quiz that you have. So will you talk to me about that and what it is, what it's like, and what it means for your donor pipeline and engagement? Totally. We started it last year on International Women's Day and we just said, let's do a quiz. We touched on each of our four verticals, health, hunger, the environment, and water. And then we said, let's like ask a compelling question that you have to answer in the quiz that through the process of taking the quiz, you're becoming really passionate and almost upset about some of these issues that are happening around the world. So what percentage of women are responsible for collecting water every day in developing countries? It's like 80% of all households rely on women. And just talking through women that die every year in childbirth, 99% of them die of preventable causes in developing countries. So I think there's just different topics and facts that you start to go like, well, wait a second, (laughs) like I need to be part of this solution. And so that's the call to action at the end is like, thank you for taking this quiz. I should add that something that's really interesting about the quiz is by taking the quiz, we have an anonymous donor who is donating $2.40, which is our current cost to help lift somebody out of poverty and to help somebody. So just, you don't have to give any money, but by the more people who take the quiz, the more people we're helping. And I believe we're getting close to 7,000 people who have taken that quiz so far. So then that enables us to to turn more dollars and help more people that way. So that's a good, I would say it's like a low-hanging fruit where people are like, yeah, I'll give two minutes and then I'm helping this charity get $2.40, why not? And at the end, what we found is like a lot of those people end up going, oh, I want to do more. Like, how can I get more involved? And a lot of them are going straight to giving monthly and joining monthly. And that's really exciting to us. So, and it's been one of our largest channels of new monthly gifts. I love it. And so before we hit record, you were telling me a little bit about how monthly giving really was such a sustaining force for you throughout COVID. And that in general, that it really sounds like that's sort of your flagship fundraising program and how you have figured out relates the best modality for the folks who are really interested in the work that you do. Talk to me a little bit about that and how you even arrived there. Yeah. And again, a lot of the good ideas are Jody ideas. This was Jody's idea <laughs> years ago, but there's so many giving programs that are, you know, sponsor a child or world vision, compassion. There's so many that have really seen their revenue grow by investing in monthly giving because people tend to stay, right? Once you're giving, and we found that, we think right now, I think our giving program is six or seven years old, but we predict that it's going to be a lifetime value of five to eight years by just getting somebody to give $5 a month or whatever they choose to give. So it ends up being really transformational to us because it also helps us predict, okay, where are we going to be next month? How much money can we get into the field right now? How about in three months? You know, It's um, a really great indicator that also provides stability for our organization and and helps us share better results with our supporters because we can then focus on saying, okay, let's get them a really good story. Last month, they supported Charlotte, who's an incredible entrepreneur in Kenya, and help her open like a second stove production factory so that she can hire 350 people. So 
trying to make it very tangible and real. So every month is a different way that you are putting adventure on autopilot, as we say, and you don't really have to think about it. Because I think, at least for me with COVID, (laughs) it's like the more things I can just subscribe to, like diapers, toilet paper, like the better. So trying to find people who are also like, I want to give well, but I don't want to think about it. You know, I just want to be able to plug it in and I'll get like a great monthly update. That's where we've seen a lot of growth from our audiences. Yep. Yep. I don't have to really do much. And I know that my money is going every month to something that's really impactful. But as you touched on with COVID, we saw really exciting campaigns. I'm sure this is the story everyone had. You're like entering January, had a good holiday season. And we had like some MOUs that we were really excited with, like a retail coffee shop partnership. And we were looking forward to these national campaigns. And then it's like, everything felt like it just was like, okay, this is just like, pour yourself a drink. You know, um, if I, if I wasn't like, I was also like eight months pregnant, like inside with my two-year-old trying to like talk to somebody in Togo about how there's no ventilators in the country. And I'm like, and then meanwhile, like our corporate partnerships were like, we're going to put this on hold. Like we got to do some blah, 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 or our, none of our coffee shops open, all things that were such valid excuses. And to us, we had to really rally and pivot and shift to digital marketing and shift to counting on our monthly donors. Most of our monthly donors end up also giving one-time gifts, which is incredible. So I think even last holiday season, I think 80% of our monthly donors made a one-time gift in Tuesday or December. So those are just people that we love and can count on and really try our best to show that we love them <laughs> as much as possible. And I think we can do a better job, even, even that said, but I think it really took a lot of like hustle and brain power to be like, okay, where can we shift here to ensure that we're able to still grow and stay open and in this crazy time that we're in? Yeah. So you touched on so many things there that I think are super important. And one of the pieces around what is the experience of someone being a part of a monthly giving program or monthly membership programs is there, what I think I'm hearing from you is that there is this like collective feeling that they're being treated both as a group and my guess is as individuals in certain ways as well. But there's this thing that like this group of people helped do this this month. And so there's this real deep component of belonging and understanding and that close-knit group, even if they don't know each other at all, but you are part of this thing that did this. And I'm curious, what other experiences do your monthly donors have in terms of either when you're inviting them to become a part of the monthly program? I love the quiz. I think that's brilliant. I have not heard anyone else create a problem-aware quiz that's their primary funnel to monthly giving. It is so smart. But I'm curious, in addition to that, what are the other feelings that you try to elicit when you're inviting people to be a part of the monthly giving program? And then what are the other touch points, either individual and personal or collective during their time in the monthly giving program? Well, our monthly giving program is called the collective. So that's good that you use that word. (laughs) It's the collective. But what we're mainly trying to highlight is like you share these values, you know, there are people all over the world, but you all share the same values of effectiveness and empowerment and opportunity. I think we try really hard to make sure people know how valued they are and that by collectively each putting money into this pot, like we're able to do so much good. I calculated it yesterday and don't quote me on this, but I think just where we are at now, our collective is set to create 
200 jobs, hire 200 people in the next 12 months who will go on to help serve over 300,000 people. And a lot of those donors, some, some of them give $5 a month, some of them give more, some of them give 100, but it's just really inspiring to know and actually see all of that change happening in terms of what they get. They get the monthly email and we're trying to welcome them. And I think we can do a much better job of, of Vic said it in her, Vic Harrison in her last podcast with you is like, what are the rituals we're creating? What's like a great way we're onboarding people and making them feel. First Tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tea of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tea of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Part of it in personality. I think we try to automate so much as nonprofits and be especially small ones. But what can we do? Like send them auto email. But it's really, I found all of our growth has come from personalization. And like people don't want to hear that. <laughs> you know, and I love talking about the quiz because it, it flows and happens. But I think at the same time, like our biggest wins have come from personally calling, personally emailing, asking about people's kids finding out more about them so that becoming a friend on Facebook without sounding too much like a stalker. It's like, how can you really get to know people so that they feel like they're part of this collective? They're not just passively donating every month along with their Netflix subscription. And I'm sure that has a huge impact on what you said about 80% of them giving one-time donations as well. So I'm curious about that because I get a lot of questions from folks about, okay, how do I treat my monthly donor list at the end of the year? Or how do I treat folks that I think could be large donors in terms of cultivating them, but they're on this monthly donor list, but at a level that's much lower than I know they have the capacity to give? How do you think about that? And do you have some sort of systems or ways of engaging folks further or figuring out if they have the appetite for further engagement? Yeah. I feel like I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> like I think I'm always like, <laughs> we shouldn't email them and ask them for money because they already give monthly. That's like the common mindset, right? It's like, oh my yes. gosh, they're already giving. Don't touch them. Yeah. Don't remind them that they're giving. But in actuality, <laughs> it's like, thank God we sent them that email because when you really dive into our data, most of those donations came from monthly givers. Which makes sense because I have to step back and think of my own giving. I give monthly to a lot of things, but when there's something special that comes up and people personally ask me in a really genuine way, I love to be part of that. I want to be part of making sure that the organization is thriving, that I support. And I think it's already part of somebody's ethos. They're already committed and they're already showing you that they care about these issues. So, and they could always just say no, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the fear that so many people have. And so I think even just a look at your numbers is a really clear indicator that those are the folks that definitely want to know when there's something new and or needed. And so I'm curious also, I'm thinking about my guess is programmatically your organization invests in a lot of 
risk is the wrong word, but invest in a lot of innovation, right? And a lot of different types of models, and especially in the ways that you support entrepreneurs. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you either talk with your donors or your community and what some of your messaging is around the need to invest in different models of programs? Yeah. And I think nonprofits, as is always said, they're scared of risk, right? People are pretty risk converse. You're like, well, what's working? Don't change it. Whatever is working, let's keep it the same. And I think quite honestly, as I mentioned back to the water issue is everybody loves to fund wells. Like donors like to fund wells. Let's just, I've seen organizations that have been like, we have money to drill more wells. We're not going to fix any. We're just going to keep drilling them. And I'm like, are you servicing the donor or are you servicing the people on the ground that you're trying to help? So for me, I think donors, there's a lot of supporters out there who actually, I would really like to make sure the people on the ground are the ones that benefit. And so for me, I think sometimes I over-communicate the, I try to simplify, but it sometimes I over-communicate the why. So a perfect example of risk is like the wall mechanic training program we helped support 10 years ago was an idea of a recent grad student, Diana Kasiga, who ended up working for Water for People in Uganda. She's Ugandan. She saw when she was four years old, the only well in her village broke. She said she remembered. Nobody knew how to fix it. She just remembered watching her dad and all the other men just standing there going like, what are we going to do? And that inspired her to say, I need to figure out how we're going to like systematically fix these wells. And she pitched water for people on starting a pilot program in a district in Uganda to keep wells working. And now that district, every single well in that entire district is functional. There's not one well, and we're now helping them install new water systems where villagers don't have any water source. So I think, and to drive it home even more, I think that is the only well mechanic training program that is um, on the continent right now, which is, is phenomenal. I know there are others, but this is like a formalized organization. And I think our supporters, I commend them so much because they knew the problem and understood the problem and understood the potential and the solution. And we're willing to invest in that, which I think is really phenomenal. I think that's really special. I think it's so easy for Bill Gates or or Melinda to have all this data and all these analytical people. And I think it's really, to me, I just think it's so commendable that the mom in Colorado reads the story and they're like, yep, totally get it. Like if I was a mom and the wells were broken, I would want a mechanic there to fix it. So I think that's just really, I don't know, a good testament to making your supporters understand and feel part of the story and seeing where they can fit in and how they can fit in. Mm. It really sounds to me like you do such a phenomenal job with the education component for your supporters and perspective. Well, (laughs) I I think the, (laughs) the fact is, is that given your monthly donor retention rate, given how many of them give a one-time donation later in the year, to me, is a clear indicator that they understand what they're giving to, right? They're not like, oh, I signed up for this thing. What was that again? And that it was related, you know, in a different episode in this series, we're going to talk a little bit about the different parts of the brain that are stimulated by different types of giving actions. And that serotonin in particular is really linked to memory. And what I think is so important about that is I think we all give donations all the time that we don't remember. Okay. Maybe not all of us. I give donations all the time that I don't remember giving to. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm like, what was that thing? Who asked me to do that? What? And so there was maybe a dopamine hit, some like quick chemical in my brain, but there was no memory associated with it, no identity associated with it. And I think the storytelling that you do, even in the last 30 minutes, the storytelling that you've been able to do, I've been able to visualize so many different people that you've talked about, relate to them, see themes across the board. Like, okay, if I care about other moms in other places dealing with challenges that I solve by going on Yelp, but would be really stressful if there wasn't a solution around me. I think like you've already been able to to really demonstrate the way that storytelling and that education moves people to see something so beautiful and powerful, even if the like logistics of the implementation aren't sexy in the same way that water shooting out of the well is. And so I just want to recognize that. And I hope that the listeners are tracking that too, because I think it's a real demonstration of something you're doing incredibly well. No, well, thank you. And I think learning from Scott at at Charity Water has been a a huge benefit to me there. I was fortunate to tell a few of the stories and seeing storytelling is powerful. You could do a lot with data, (laughs) but I think the owners want both, right? And I think you lead with a good story and then you put some facts behind it that gives people the confidence like, okay, my money is going to do the most good here. Really, really powerful. Yeah. So I want to do a big shift, but it's all very related because you've talked about women and moms a few times. And I know that you all have a new initiative around the Women's Fund. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. And just for you as a mom, I'm a mom too. I can't, congratulations on your (laughs) second little one. And the pandemic has been so hard in so many ways on women and on moms in particular. And I think even right now, I was hoping we weren't going to be saying this two years into this, but we're seeing this whole second huge wave of childcare closing in the US and Canada schools all closing, going back to at home. And all of a sudden it feels like this second huge wave of sort of burden and pressure and hardship. And there are certain things that in the US society is supporting, but I think the perhaps like empathy and awareness that women in general are starting to have around what this might mean in other places is growing. And so tell me as that maybe collective education is increasing in this space, what that's meant for all of you and how that relates to the Women's Fund. Yeah, the Women's Fund is a long time coming. We'd always been supporting organizations that empower women. And then when we really stepped back for a second, we realized, well, wait, a lot of these are actually male-founded, but yet we were excluding, we thought like, okay, well, we need to support organizations that have a little more meat on them. Maybe they're operating in a million dollar revenue. I'm talking locally about local organizations in Africa. And we realized that we're excluding a lot of incredible women organizations. And we realized that much like the VC world, I think, is women-led organizations aren't getting the same level of support as venture capital you know, supports women-founded businesses or tech companies. So there are actually incredible women who are running remarkable organizations in Africa that deserve the same level of funding and mentorship and support to help get their organizations not only off the ground, but then scaling across countries, the continent. So we wanted to be part of making sure that we're doing that, especially as a female-founded organization ourselves. So that was before COVID. And I had shared that idea with one of the foundations that supports us called um, Catbird. They're an incredible jeweler in Brooklyn, and they're also female-founded. And I just said this idea offhand. It would be really incredible if like a lot of 
female founded organizations or organizations that really care about equality came together and said, let's really make sure that we're empowering women and helping women who run local organizations in Africa get the funding they need. And she came back to me and said, okay, this is a remarkable, oh, her team, this is a remarkable idea. This is me in development, not pitching enough. I, I had asked for $10,000, I think. And because that's what she had given the year before. That's like the number one mistake, right? But 10X. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, so she, she, they said, we love this idea. What we actually want to do is we want to do it for the next 10 years and we want to give you half a million dollars. And so, yeah, <laughs> so half a million is way different than the 10,000. I, of course, was crying, but that gave us the idea like, okay, there's a lot of other organizations and women and people out there who share that same belief. Like, how can we bring people together collectively and, and do the most good by helping local organizations? So at least for us as an organization, a little over half of the organizations we fund are female founded. So we think that's really important. So at least we have equity across our portfolio. And I would love for other organizations and foundations to do the same, right? To also say, let's look at who we're supporting locally. And let's make sure that we're letting local women lead. Mm, I love that. Okay. I want to be sensitive to time. So I will make sure with this episode, we include a link to the quiz that everyone can take and check out and more information about the adventure project. Sometimes I invite guests to highlight a nonprofit that they love and care about. I think we know which one this is. So we'll make sure that everyone gets to learn more about the work that you do. Any final words that you want to send folks off with? No, I think if people are listening to this, if it resonates, please like join our email list, get more involved. We're going to be hiring for more people. We're looking for really remarkable people to, to join our team, but also to join our adventure and, and become monthly members too. And that would be really phenomenal if this resonated with anyone. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Mallory. All right, there is so much wisdom in this episode, so I want to make sure to highlight a few pieces. One thing to remember from the episode with Francesco is that just having a give monthly box pre-selected on your donation form is not a monthly giving program. And he even suggests that monthly giving programs aren't the only way to create consistency and reliability in our fundraising. But the reason I think they do that, in addition to the automatic card payment, is that I think organizations that have official monthly giving programs are somewhat unknowingly creating more peaks in their communications that are engaging their supporters in ways they haven't been with their annual supporters. There are a few components that Becky really highlights, and I want to make sure you walk away with these. One is just how powerful storytelling is. Yes, metrics are super important, but ultimately the stories of progress and development are the key to keeping people invested in the cause. The second is making supporters understand and feel a part of the story. It's no coincidence that the Adventure Project's monthly giving program is called The Collective. Their network of donors and funders know that their contribution, even if it's small, is creating massive change. And the third is around personalization, and that personalization means reaching out directly. The question is how can you really get to know people so that they feel like they're a part of your community and they're not just passively donating every month? 
Part of that is celebrating together, creating rituals as Vicarison always reminds us. And part of it, I hate to break it to you, is that personal touch. Okay, I know there was a lot in this episode per usual. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Becky's incredible work and how to connect with her. And you should definitely check out The Adventure Project as well. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. If you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.